Well, good morning. Uh, as Drew said, my name is Adam. I'm the discipleship pastor here. And um, if you ever needed proof that men don't really ever mature past uh, childhood, they just repress it better, the first thought I had when I walked out on the stage is, man, there's a lot of space to play up here. That's, that's where I am this morning. Um, anyways, we are starting a, a four-week series on relationships, and it's called Messy, and the subtitle is Loving Others Isn't Easy. And if you've ever been in a human relationship, whether it be a friend, a romantic relationship, any interaction with somebody, you know that sometimes when you open yourself up to care for somebody else on any level, you also open yourself up to hurt. You open yourself up to the possibility that they could betray you, that they could hurt you, that they could say something about you that strikes directly on some deep insecurity of yours. And if you've had pain in relationships in the past, it can make you want to just give up on them altogether. My dad said that that his dream is to retire and to become a hermit that just lives out in the woods and does stuff. And he says it jokingly, usually when... Um, any of his kids are doing something that he did not approve of, like just shouting in the back seat of the car. It's like, I can't wait for the day when I don't have to talk to any other person. But we've all been there, right? I mean, it reminds me of the, the famous Ron Swanson quote where he said, I'm not interested in caring about people. I once worked with a guy for three years and never learned his name. Best friend I ever had. We still never talk sometimes. <laughs> I think about that quote all the time because it's hilarious but also because it drives at the, at the core of this thing, right? That like, it would be easier to just step away from relationships. And that's probably right. It would be easier. But we're not called to an easy life. That's never been the goal. Just to simply ride through life with no possibility for hurt, with complete safety, with complete ease. That's not the goal. We're called and we're made for something more. And relationships are an integral part of what we're made to do. And so over the next four weeks, we're going to look at relationships from a biblical perspective, from God's perspective, and see what if we followed his way? What if we followed his truth? How could we navigate the messiness of relationships. Will you pray with me as we begin? God, we are thankful for your word. And we pray that it would serve as an anchor for us today. That as many of us are planning to go and spend time with people and at parties later today, that we would first hold on to the truths of your word. And ultimately, the purpose for relationships. So God, guide us today. Change our mind about how we view the world based on what we see in your word today. We love you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Every time you ever hear me talk about a sermon series on relationships, you will hear me say that the best place to go when we're talking about relationships is back to the very beginning, right? And here's the reality that we need to get around today as we start. We are made in the image of God, and we are made for relationships. At the outset, God created everything, created the heavens and the earth, and he said that it was good, and then he created man 
in his image. He made us in his image, and he made us for relationships. Genesis 1, 26 and 27 says this. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. God said, out of everything I've created, the prize of my creation is man and woman. This is the thing he was proud of, and he was proud that we were in relationship. And the fact that we are stamped with the image of God is the thing that gives us value in this world. We are the sons and we are the daughters of God. We do not need relationships to give us value. And that's an important place to start, right? You have value because you are loved by God. And when you accept what Jesus has done to bring you back into the family of God, you have eternal value and significance. Your value does not come from the people that you walk alongside in life with. You don't need girls, some boy to tell you that you're beautiful and valuable for that to be true. Your father in heaven says that about you, that you are strong and wise and incredible and you have that value divinely imprinted on you. And guys, you don't need some girl to come alongside you and say that you are strong and capable and and whatever for that to be true. It's divinely imprinted on you when we accept the fact that we can be welcomed back into the family of God and we live in our our image as sons and daughters of God, we have value. It's not external relationships that give you value. It is the word of God. It is the family of God that gives you value. But at the same time, we're made for relationships. God himself, the one who created us in his image, exists in community. And if you're reading those verses... You see it there. Then God, singular God, said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, perfect unity, such unity that it's oneness. It is a heavenly characteristic to be in perfect, unified community and relationship. And we are made in the image of of that God, and so we're made to reflect that heavenly characteristic of being in community with others. As we uncover our identity, we're supposed to be willing to step into the reality that we're made for relationships, messy as they might be, difficult as they might be, painful as they might be, because the world is not as it was created. We now live in a broken world. God created the world perfectly. He created us for relationship. He created us in community. And then sin entered the world. Sin entered the picture. We decided we want to be like God, and we now live in a broken world. And so the relationships that we walk in are now broken. But we're still called to walk in those relationships. And so we're getting first things first here, and we're just laying down a foundation But into a broken world, and in a broken world where we're supposed to exist in relationships, God just didn't say, good luck. He didn't just say, figure that out. Relationships are going to be hard. It's going to be messy. It's going to be difficult. 
But here's a little tip from heaven. Here's a little divine nugget of wisdom you can hold on to. Instead, into our brokenness that we created, God himself stepped into the story. And every week we celebrate this reality. That into our brokenness and mess, into our messiness, Jesus came out of heaven into earth to offer us a chance to be redeemed and restored, to live in unity again, to have healthy relationships again. And while he did that, he offered us an example, an example to follow. He showed us what it looked like to live. Jesus came to show us how to live, to give us this example. I think about a, a little phrase from 1 John a lot. 1 John is this little book toward the end of the Bible, and it's all about the incarnational reality of Jesus, the reality that Jesus showed up in the flesh on earth. And it's this, this over and over warning not to get sucked into the ways of the world, but to look to the ways of heaven, to walk in the light in what feels like a dark world, to follow Jesus because he showed up. And in 1 John 1, 2, it says this, the life appeared, we have seen it and testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was the Father, and has appeared to us. The life appeared to all of us in the middle of darkness, in the middle of a dark and lifeless world. The life appeared, and we've seen it, and we can follow that example, and we can walk as he walked, and he showed us how we can have relationships. He showed us how to behave again. He showed us how to have communion and community with the Father and to live in unity with one another, even in the brokenness and even in the difficulty. He showed up in the middle of that difficulty and gave us an example. This is an unbelievable reality of what we gather to celebrate here, that God would come into our mess that he would put on flesh and show up and walk in dirt and walk in our, our likeness so that he could show us how to have community again. So that we could follow his example and become more and more like him as sons and daughters. A couple of years ago, I was here before a Christmas Eve service, and Cohen loves to come and help me set up for services. He likes to come and work with me. I actually do work. The work was for him. Uh, so he wanted to come early, and uh, he was allowed to, and he came, and he was taking his role very seriously and helping me prepare for the services, putting out, you know, stuff and, and getting everything set. And when he wasn't stealing candy from Mike's office, he was very diligently following really close behind me. And then I'm walking, doing something, focusing, and all of a sudden from behind me, I hear him say, look, Dad, I can walk like you. And he just goes like this. And I was like, what are you talking about? And I looked down and my hands were in my pocket. And I was like, oh, okay. He was looking to me for cues on how to be here. What does it look like to work at church before a Christmas Eve service? He needed an example to follow. And it resonated with me because in that moment, I remembered 
being 10 years old and being able to ride in the front seat of the car for the first time. Does anybody remember that when you got to move from the back seat to the front seat? It was like a huge deal. You could call shotgun now. It's like a momentous time in, in a child's life. But I remember the first time I was sitting with my dad in the front seat, and I felt so cool. And he was driving, and he had his hand up on the window. So awesome. Looked super cool, you know. And his, his whole arm covered the window. And I was like, man, that's super cool, you know. <laughs> like, I want to be super cool like that. And so I put my hand on the window, but my hand only went halfway up the window. And I was like, I'm not that cool yet. But I wanted to know, how do you sit in the front seat? You do this. <clears throat> I can't quite do that yet. But I need an example to follow. 1 John 1, 7 says this. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. Follow his example. Lean in on the life that he's offering us, a life that continues to fix brokenness, that gives us strength in difficulty, that is a foundation for us in relational brokenness, that offers us a chance for redemption and restoration as we follow his example. I read a few years back uh, Dale Carnegie's classic right? How to Win Friends and Influence People. And it's an influential book. It was an influential book in, in my life when I read it. And I'm a, I'm a sucker for any Facebook article that's like, here's a list of seven ways to become a better friend or father or husband or whatever. Like if it's a list, you better believe I'm reading that article. So if you ever want me to read an article you write, make it a list. That's it. That's the one criteria. And so I thought, if you would indulge me, that I would make a list of three things um, of how to win at relationships according to Jesus. If we're going to follow his example, if he is the one, if he's the light that we can follow, and if we can walk in light, what is the example that he sets in relationships? Because he showed up on the earth. He was incarnational. In the flesh, he came and showed us how to interact, and he had relationships on this earth. And so what did he do? And so these examples will come from the book of John and throughout the New Testament. But here we go. How to win a relationship according to Jesus. Number one, be selfless. That is so easy to write down and so difficult to live out, especially when your spouse wants a glass of water after you're already laying down in bed. <laughs> especially when your kid needs you to come downstairs and get him off the banister because he's gotten himself stuck up there and you're upstairs watching a show you wanted to watch. It's so easy to live, to, to say these things, like I want to live selflessly like Christ. I want to follow his example. Because in John 15, 13, Jesus himself, before he heads to the cross and gives himself up so that we could have life and he would die the death that we deserved, he said this, greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for one's friends. I think that all of us would like to think, 
maybe I don't want to group everybody in. I would like to think that I would gladly give up my life if it meant that I could save my wife, if it meant that I could save any of my kids. I would like to think that I would give up my life to save any one of you. That if somebody came in with a gun today and started, that I would dive in front of you and selflessly give myself up. I like to think that. But sometimes, I don't like to wait in line to get coffee in the lobby. Right? We take this verse, I think sometimes, this verse, and we take it to the extreme. Like, yeah, of course I would lay down my life for my friend. But am I going to clean up the mess if I see the person sitting next to me spill their coffee? Will I get up and go get napkins so that they feel less embarrassed and clean up? There's levels to this, to selflessness. How often are you willing to lay your life down for a friend? Because it doesn't always mean you have to die, but it does mean you die to self over and over again. One of the prayers that I prayed for the first uh, year of my marriage, in my prayer journal, every day I would conclude with, God, make me a servant. And those were cheap words because there were times when I was helping fold the laundry or whatever that I thought, I don't want to do this. Okay, make you a servant. It's got to be more than just words. Paul puts it this way in Philippians 2, 3 through 8. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but, but each of you to the interest of the other in your relationships with one another and have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. If we could all go all in on selflessness, nobody would be left out. Ephesians 5 is all about it. Read it later. It's all about this idea that if we would all just serve each other, nobody would get left behind. It's not about hierarchy. It's about serving one another. If everybody in here was completely selfless, everybody's needs would be taken care of because nobody would be looking to their own needs. Everybody would be looking to everybody else's needs. But we don't yet live in a perfect world. And so your decision to go all in on selflessness will sometimes mean that your selflessness gets taken advantage of. I'm sorry that's just the reality, but that's still the truth that Jesus calls us into, to be selfless. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down his life for his friends. Are you willing to be completely satisfied in Jesus so that you can live selflessly with a world that doesn't yet know Jesus? Are you willing to lay down your life for your friends that they might know of a God who loves them and who's given them divine value? Be selfless in relationships. That's how you win at relationships, by dying to yourself, by laying down your life. Number two, show up even in tragedy. Show up. 
Jesus put on flesh. He gave up eternity so that he could be with us on this earth and he could offer us an example and he showed up. You show up even in tragedy. There's this really famous story of Lazarus passing away. He falls sick and he, he, and he dies in John chapter 11. And in John 11, 5 through 7, Jesus says this. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. And his disciples did not think it was a good idea. They said, Jesus, are you sure? Do you remember? I don't know if you remember, so I just want to make sure that you know that I remember. Last time we were in Judea, they tried to stone us, like murder, stone us. Do you remember that? I don't think we should go back there. That's not like the best idea. And do you know what Jesus did? He took his disciples and they went back to Judea. And he knew he was going to show up late. And he knew that Mary and Martha were going to be upset with him. And they were upset with him. And they let him know that they were upset with him. But he knew what he was supposed to do. He was supposed to display the glory of God. And so he showed up to bring Lazarus back from the dead ultimately. But he didn't show up justifying himself and making excuses and being like, yo, chill, Mary and Martha. It's not, I got this. He listened to them. He showed up. And when he heard that Lazarus has died, John eleven thirty five, 35, one of the most powerful two words in scripture, Jesus wept. He walked into conflict. He walked into a situation where people disagreed with him. He walked into danger so that he could show up incarnationally in the flesh into tragedy. And he would weep with his friends because they were in pain. Show up, especially when it's going to be uncomfortable, especially when somebody might disagree with you. Show up and be there and be a calming presence in Jesus' name. Because there is life after the grave because Jesus came to earth. But we can show up and we, we can cry with people when they lose somebody. We can show up and we can be selfless in the midst of conflict and tragedy. We can be that presence. Show up even in, especially in tragedy. You have no idea how much it means that you would show up to a hospital until you go visit somebody that's in the hospital. Because some people don't have family and friends that would show up when they're sick. So make a call. Drive across town. Show up. Be present. Jesus did. He walked back to a town that wanted him dead so that he could be with the people who were mourning. Be selfless. Show up even in tragedy. And number three, and this one's not so fun either, serve even those who might betray you. Serve, even those who might betray you. This is a passage that for many reasons, you got to wish wasn't as direct as it was. John 13, Jesus is with his 12 disciples, and he starts to wash their feet. Now, feet are gross. Like they're really gross. They're gross today. They were especially gross back then because they walked in hot climates and dirt and all of that, and they were sitting around, and they needed their feet washed, and Jesus got up and got the basin and started washing their feet and started talking to them. 
And everybody was like, no, 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 that's not how this goes, Rabbi. That's not how this goes, Jesus. We're supposed to be washing you. We're supposed to be serving you. And he's like, no, I got this. And in verse 14, he says, now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. Are you sure, Jesus? Because that's, well, I don't know about that. I don't know about that. I remember sitting in a, a discipleship group a few years ago, and um, <clears throat> there was a, a husband who had gone through <clears throat> who had gone through cancer treatments, and he couldn't wash himself while he was going through chemo. And so he recalled really vividly and, and trying not to cry. I remember having to have somebody bathe me. And I remember most specifically when my wife picked up my feet and washed them for me. Because it took him back to this passage. And there was something so powerful about being served in that way. And it wasn't the wife who did the serving that told the story right. We serve so that others would see that there's a God who came out of heaven to meet our every need. And he loves us and he wants to show up even in your most vulnerable and messiest situation. But there's another part to it too, right? Because Jesus didn't just serve and wash the feet of the disciples who are going to stay true to him. He washed the feet of Peter who was going to deny him three times before the night was over, and he washed the feet of Judas, who was going to leave that room and go and sell Jesus out for some money. And Jesus knew that was going to happen. And if you're not sure that he knew, he says in verse 21, after he'd said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, very truly I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. But there was no asterisk, there's no underscore, there was no anything else after that. He had already done the serving. He had already knelt down and washed the feet of Judas, the one who would sell him out. Serve. Even those who are going to betray you. Because what's the alternative? To keep score? Jesus calls us to be completely satisfied in him so we can be completely selfless with a world that needs to know him. And of course, as we walk through relationships, and we'll talk about what it means to set up healthy boundaries and, and do all those things and not just be hurt after hurt after hurt, but your foundation, your motivation needs to be to be like Jesus as best you can. And he says to win in relationships, you be selfless. You show up even in tragedy, and you serve even those who might betray you or take advantage of you or talk about you later or whatever. You follow his example. And so here we are at the end of week one of a four-week series on relationships. And we'll sort out more and more of this, but here's what I want to end today. One big point to bring it all together and to serve as a motivation for the next four weeks. 
Relationships are messy. They are messy, but they are core to the mission of the kingdom of God, which is to make disciples who make disciples. We live in a broken, sin-filled world, and Jesus sends us into that sin-filled world to make disciples in his name, to make sure that everybody in the world knows that God is good, that Jesus loves them, that he showed up for them. In Matthew 28, 19 and 20, it says this, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. We are to make disciples who make disciples who make disciples and who keep the good news of the kingdom of God moving forward. It will be messy. You'll make a mess. You'll need to say sorry to somebody. You'll be the one who makes a mistake, and there's grace for us because Jesus showed up to make sure that we could be put back together. Just this past Christmas, it was Christmas time, and so our kids didn't get their normal nap times, and when kids don't get their normal nap times, they turn into what we get when we don't get our normal nap times, you know, grumpy animals. And so uh, Cohen had made a, just a disaster mess in the living room, and I knew he was tired, and so I said, hey, bud, you go rest. I'll clean this mess up for you. And he walked out of the room, and then he walked back into the room, and he got beside himself upset because he wanted to clean up the mess because he has some sense of personal responsibility, but he lost it because he hadn't slept and he was and he was like, I wanted to clean up the mess. It's like, I got it. I did it for you. No big deal. I cleaned up that mess. You can continue on with your day. No big deal. And he could not get over it. And he walked out of the room sad. And then I walked upstairs just giving him some space. And I came back down and he had undone every bit of the cleaning up that I had done. And I looked at him there standing in his mess, and I said, what are you doing? He said, I wanted to clean up the mess, but now I can't clean up the mess. And I was like, I know. That's why I cleaned it up for you. And then I thought, oh, yeah, Jesus cleaned up my mess. And sometimes in my relationship, my selfishness sneaks in, and I make a little bit more of a mess out of it because my ego got stamped on. And I throw another toy down because I didn't get to do what I wanted to do on a day. I had to do what I was responsible for. I was serving somebody else. And I made a bigger mess out of it. And Jesus is like, I already cleaned that up. Could you just live as I live? Just follow my example. There's no mess that you could make that I can't clean up. But trust me that I have a better way of living. I have a better way. The life appeared. And so will we live trusting that his ways are better than our ways? Will we live trusting that his example is better than our wisdom? Will we live trusting that his word will guide and change and morph us and transform us so that a sick and dying world can see that the life appeared and that everybody can walk in the light? So leave from this place, go to Super Bowl parties, knowing that the core mission of the kingdom of God is to make disciples who make disciples. And so the way that you cheer for a football game better not undercut your testimony that Jesus is changing you. That Jesus has rearranged the place where you put your trust and value. Go to the Super Bowl party to make disciples who make disciples. And then go to work on Monday 
to make disciples who make disciples, and then go into your marriage to make disciples who make disciples, and then parent your kids to make disciples who make disciples. This is what we're to do in relationships. This is the example that we have, and I promise you that he will meet our needs as we trust him more and more. Will you pray with me? God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you've given us an example to follow. Now we're asking for the courage to follow it, to bear the cost of what it means to be your disciple in a world that doesn't know you completely. Help us to live from the courage of the conviction that you have a better way and that we're supposed to be your ambassadors in this world. We love you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.